Well, it is a, a joy to uh, see several of you. It is, well, actually, it's a joy to see all of you, but I know several of you, and it is really, really sweet to, to see you, and um, on behalf of your uh, mother church, uh, you are missed, and you are loved, and you are prayed for weekly. Uh, last week, we had a visitor reception, uh, welcoming uh, people that have been visiting Covenant Life, and we asked them, we just said, we're committed to planting a church. And I said, have, have you heard, if you've been visiting, have you heard of any, any church that we regularly pray for? And two of our visitors said, Covenant Hope. And so uh, we do. We, we pray for you. Uh, we miss you. We love you. We're hopeful for how the Lord will use you in the days ahead. And so uh, it's a joy to be with you. And thank you for letting some of our members trickle in and worship with you. And I think in a few weeks, Kevin will preach. And so, yeah, we're, we're hopeful for our partnership in the days ahead. So thanks for letting me come and be here today. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever thought about the question, now what? Now what? In many ways, it's what I felt last night when I went to bed after Tennessee Football lost to an inferior football team. <laughs> Nevertheless, they did lose. And I thought to myself, now what? Are you familiar with that feeling that's just sort of on the other side of a big moment in your life? Uh, perhaps, you know, you spend so many years trying to graduate high school or college or your master's program. And you get to the other side, and all the celebration has died down, and you think, now what? Or you may partner, or you're now the manager, or you've landed the job that you've been aiming for, and yet deep down, the thought crosses your mind, okay, now that I've got it, now what? Or perhaps you get the friendship that you long for, or you get the sports accolade that you want, you move across country to begin a new chapter, you marry, you hold the life of a newborn in your hand, your last child leaves home, the culmination of months of effort and preparation. And there comes the, the time where you just ask, now what? And here's the thing, you as a church, you're not immune to, that, to the same question. I think about what it was like a year into Covenant Life Church's existence. We had eight months that were encouraging and then the next 12 months were really hard. And during that 12-month difficult stretch, I just remember asking myself several times, now what? Now what? And I wonder this morning if a year into the establishment, by God's grace, of this church, some things encouraging, other things difficult, I wonder if you're thinking, now what? Well, underneath the question of now what lies... I believe either genuine uncertainty or a level of fear and trepidation for the future. After working so hard for something and maybe by God's grace accomplishing it, there can then seem to be a lull in the now what. Like we just came off of the, the mountaintop experience 
and now having to come back down, now what? A sense of here we go again. We have to start over. In some ways, Covenant Life Church was there a year ago when we sent you out. So excited, planning, praying, looking forward to this day. And I remember showing back up the week after and just thinking, now what? Well, I think the answer to the question of now what lies in this. That the excitement and the anticipation of the Christian life, it doesn't require a string of momentous events. We're not going from mountain-high top experience to mountain-high top experience to mountain-high top experience. That's not how the Christian life is lived. No, the Christian life requires a string of walking in faithful obedience. In the ordinary, in the regular mundane rhythms of your life. And God honors a long obedience in the same direction. And so the goal of the Christian life is not merely to just, how do I get from one mountaintop experience to another? But it really is. It's joy that's found in honoring the Lord because we're being faithful. I wondered this morning, has the joy been lost on you? Are you experiencing that joy that comes from faithfulness to the Lord? Not, I feel like something is missing or wrong because we're not on the mountaintop, but do you know the joy that comes from just being faithful? Most of Christian life is this uphill climb, and then you realize, okay, wait, look, I think we've reached somewhat of a mountaintop. Let's look around. Let's enjoy the view, only then to realize that what's ahead is a continued uphill climb. So we keep, we keep seeking to be faithful to God day after day. And we trust that the grace that brought us to those moments of celebration is the same grace that will meet us as we walk faithfully day in and day out. And so this morning, I trust that God will meet us as we gather around His Word to be reminded of that. The, the answer to now what is really found in us losing our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Losing our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I hope the Lord, by His Spirit, will make clear in our moments together this morning. So let me pray, and we'll look at Mark chapter 8. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to You asking You to help us. Lord, meet with us. I pray that You would allow Your Word to transform us. We come submitting to Your Word. and So would You help us do that? Would you convince us by your word that life is not found where this world tells us to insist? The world says insist upon yourself. Life isn't found there. And so show us the better way. And show us how Christ has made it possible for us to live the better way. And so for that to happen, I pray that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. 
I am so thankful to be with my friends. I pray that you would meet with us in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not opened your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Mark chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, second book of the New Testament. And as you drop into a section of the Bible, it really does require some level of understanding as to what's happening in that section. What's happening all around the verses that we're going to be considering this morning. And so if we were to go back, we would begin in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And we're given this account of Jesus healing a blind man. And this healing is a little bit different from the other healings that Jesus performs. In many ways, this is a two-stage healing. The blind man can see in part. The Bible tells us that he's looking around and he can see what seems to be like trees walking around. And then Jesus comes and touches him again, and he's able to see clearly. Well, Mark continues, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus asks his disciples this all-important question, Who do people say that I am? And really, Jesus is wanting to know who the disciples say he is. So who do people say that I am? Moving to who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly. Peter says, you are the Christ. And so we're reading that and we're thinking about the healing that Jesus has just done. And we're thinking, wait a minute. I think think the point of the healing and the teaching is to show that the disciples are seeing clearly. The disciples can see. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then tells his disciples that he will suffer. He'll be rejected. He'll be killed. And then he'll rise from the dead three days later. And the same Peter who rightly answered the question now takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And you begin to realize, wait a minute, okay, maybe he doesn't really see. Maybe he can't see as clearly as he thinks he can. And then you go, wait a minute. Jesus just healed a blind man, and it was in two stages, reminding us that the physical condition of the blind man, it helps us to understand the spiritual condition of the disciples. They can see in part, but they haven't fully seen who Jesus is and why he has come. And it's at this point In the story, verse 34 tells us that Jesus calls not just the disciples to himself, he calls the crowds to himself. And he invites the crowds to this kind of life. A kind of life that will require everything, and yet it promises and rewards everything. And that invitation stands for you and I this morning. And so let's consider the invitation, and let's consider the reasons for the invitation. So the invitation and the reasons for the invitation. That's where we'll go this morning. So first, the invitation. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How easy would it be each week if Ronnie just stood up here and just preached a message that affirmed life as you want it. 
I, you would need to build a bigger building. Everybody wants to hear that message. I want to be affirmed in the things that I want. And yet God in His kindness and His grace loves you too much to allow you to stay there. And so praise be to God when the word goes forth from this pulpit and it challenges your desires that are contrary to the desires and the will of God, you should be thankful for that. As hard as it is, you should be thankful for it. Because if the Lord were to lead you, uh, leave you in that predicament of just wanting what you want, that's the whole reason that we're even in the predicament that we're in, apart from Christ and apart from God. So now what? So Jesus extends an invitation. Three commands. First one, deny himself. The command to deny himself. If anyone is going to follow Jesus, he says he must deny himself. Now, it would be, uh, it's, it's important that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying deny yourself of something. Right? Jesus isn't saying deny yourself of the bad movies that you like to watch. Deny yourself of the chocolate late at night. Deny yourself of certain sins. Now, this isn't a denial of something. This is a denial of yourself. Jesus is saying, cease to make yourself the object of your life. Cease to make yourself the sun in which your life orbits around. This involves a fundamental reorientation of life. Jesus, with this command, Jesus is saying, you can no longer be the center of you. You have to live for something bigger than you. And the good news of the Christian faith is that there is something bigger than you to live for. There is one who's bigger than you, that you could and should live for. This is what Paul says, reminding the Christians that he wrote to in Galatians. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I no longer, it's, it's not I who live. I'm not living for self. I'm not the center of my existence. And so there's this call to deny yourself. And so I wonder this morning, in what areas, if you are going to follow with integrity after Jesus, what areas require denial that you're slow to deny? What are you hanging on to? And maybe the better question is, why are you hanging on to it? What do you feel like that if you give up, somehow you lose in following Jesus? And so the first command is to deny yourself. The second command, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So it's helpful for us to get the 
the tame, ornate accessory out of your mind. This was a symbol of Rome's terror and horrific death. One author, James Brooke, put it this way, this is not, by taking up your cross, it's not enduring some type of irritation or major burden. But it's a willingness to give up everything dear in this life and even life itself for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Then there has to be a willingness to die. To lose your life. Luke's Gospel says daily. Take up your cross daily. And this would have hit Mark's audience unique because Nero was crucifying followers of Jesus during this time. And maybe, maybe you're prone to think, well, if I take up my cross and I begin to have to do these hard things in denying myself and being willing to die for the sake of Jesus, sometimes we think that's, that's a rather isolating place to be. And yet the cross, even in Nero's time, as Christians would walk and they would see believers hanging on crosses, that wasn't, that wasn't a reminder of Jesus' abandonment of them. No, that was an identification with Him. Again, it's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. To die, to deny yourself, and to die to yourself daily is not Christ abandoning you, it's Christ welcoming you into an identification with Him that isn't found on you insisting on life as you want it. It's found only in you being willing to come to the end of life as you want it. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The third command. So first, deny himself. Secondly, take up his cross. And third, follow me. And here's the thing. The only way to follow him is by following the first two commands. The Christian faith knows nothing of following Jesus apart from denying yourself. It knows nothing apart... Uh, following Jesus in the Christian faith knows nothing doesn't know following yourself apart from taking up your cross. Right? This is Paul, again, Philippians chapter 3, writing to the church at Philippi. What's he say? He says, Whatever things were gained to me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's verse 7. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Like I hope you see, Paul says Jesus is worth losing everything for. And not only is Jesus worth losing everything for, when you put everything that you've lost up with everything that you've gained, these are no longer losses in view of what you gain in Christ. 
Paul Tripp says, this is a call of grace. Because in calling us to this kind of sacrifice, Jesus is actually rescuing us from ourselves. So let go of your own life. Let go of your plan for your life. Your role in your life. Let, lay it all down and follow Him. And in the West today, it can seem that it costs very little to follow Jesus. Because we, all, we don't always make the connection between following Jesus with denying self and following Jesus with taking up my cross. But rest assured that though it may be packaged soft, softer today, Jesus still requires this of his followers. And so we could say it another way. Jesus says, you can't follow me unless you deny yourself and take up your cross. And the disciples, as well as the crowds, as well as you and I, were learning something about Jesus. Jesus demands everything. He demands everything. He gives everything for His people and everything to His people and demands everything from His people. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're hearing this and you're, you're, you're a little slow because you're thinking, okay, I, I get it. I, this is what I figured. I figured that... The Christian faith and this religion thing really is about living a life of gloom, right? Like really wanting to, to have pleasure and really wanting to find joy in this life. And yet I have to deny myself all of those things. And I become kind of handcuffed to this religious system. And I just want you to know, I appreciate that that's how it could seem. But I also would want you to know in love that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Jesus isn't calling people to a life of gloom. <laughs> a life of self-denial, as one author said, it may look far different from the life that you've wanted, but a life of self-denial that gains Christ cannot be worse than the life that you've wanted. It will always be better. It doesn't mean it will always be easier. But it will always be better. And so the answer this morning, if you're not a Christian, to now what? It begins here. It begins with this call to deny yourself of living life the way that you want to live it. Giving up the right to call the shots for how you think life should be lived. And perhaps you don't think your life, uh, your way of living life is really that bad. And I would just want to say that's part of the problem. Is oftentimes we can't even see and we don't even realize how the life that we would choose runs contrary to the life that is best. And so just because it makes sense to you doesn't mean that it's best for you. Owing to Adam and Eve... Going back to the very beginning of creation, they rebelled against God. And do you know what they did? They did in that moment what they thought was best. 
they thought that that the uh, they thought that the command that Jesus gave, or that God gave, in order to just eat from from every tree but the one, they thought that was God withholding something good from them. And so, what do they do? They do what they thought best, and they rebelled against God. And the unfortunate news is that every one of us, we've inherited that same nature that's hardwired to rebel against God's good rule. And the Bible calls that sin. And it doesn't just mean like the really, really, really bad stuff. It means any of the stuff that runs contrary to what He's called us to do. And a holy God must judge sin. And a holy God must pour out hatred on sin because sin is everything opposed to God's holiness. And so if we don't have a God who's serious about holiness, then we don't have a God. And if we don't have a God who's serious about sin, then we don't have a God who's holy. And that's what God will do. Everyone who is in sin stands underneath the cup of His wrath that He will pour out because of our sin. And yet in mercy, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to satisfy God's holy standard, both in living a life of perfection, a life that didn't deserve His wrath, as well as absorbing God's wrath in the death that Jesus died. He earned what we could not earn on our own, and He provided what we could not gain on our own. He lived the life that we should have lived, and He died the death that we all will die under God's wrath if we go to our grave in our sin. In the death of Jesus, there is the death of sin. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that in Him is life forevermore. That you don't just lose, you don't just give up sin in this life, you actually gain life evermore with the God that you were created for. And so if you're not a Christian, the good news this morning is that though you may have come in this way, you don't have to leave that way. God in great mercy and grace offers this type of everlasting life and forgiveness of sin. And it's not on your ability to die to yourself just perfectly or to always carry your cross perfectly. No, it's on the ability of the the accomplished work of Jesus who did the will of the Father perfectly, who carried His cross perfectly who rose from the third day triumphantly. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would call you to trust in the work of Jesus as your only hope to be made right with God. Turn from your sin and really believe that what Jesus has done is what you need to stand before God. And if you have any questions about that, talk to anyone in this room. Does this describe your life? non-Christian, it can. 
And my Christian brothers and sisters, it should. You entered through the small gate, and many of us often forget that the path of following Him is narrow. And so daily, this is to be your life. A life that has been liberated by grace. And because it's been liberated by grace, we then joyfully deny ourselves and we take up our cross and we follow Him. Not because we have to as though it's some burden, but we get to because it's a joy. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships, in the locker room, at the workplace, in your moments of leisure, everything you do is this personal and willing, grace-initiated submission to the Lordship of Christ. He is Lord and we are not. And that's, that's, not, that's not meant to be a threat to us. That's meant to be a grace to us. The gospel message liberates you and I from the slavery of sin. And it frees us to follow after Him. That's the invitation. And Jesus gives a few reasons. So that's the second point. The reasons for the invitation. And each of the reasons in verses 35 through 38, they begin with the word for. Verse 35, reason number one. Die that you may live. Die that you may live. Listen again, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Die that you may live. If you're not following Jesus, then you are holding on to your life. And one pastor, David Platt, he noted that the problem is that we've created a whole Christian culture that says you can follow Jesus and not deny yourself. He says we can say you have Christ and you can have life as you want it. But that's a false message because it puts you revolving around a false Messiah, yourself. And so if you want to live in Christ, then you have to die to self. I mean, it's a principle we see all throughout the Bible. John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is teaching. And this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so if we think that the way that we are going to get most out of this life is by insisting on life as we want to live it, we're misunderstood. We're grossly misunderstood. Jesus says the only way you can gain and get life is by dying, losing your life. It's this heart posture that says, whatever God wants, I want. Whatever He wants me to be, that's what I'll be. Wherever He wants me to go, that's where I will go. Whatever He asks me to give, I will give that no matter the cost. Why? Because Jesus is my life. Jesus is not merely an accessory to your already pretty good life. No. Jesus is meant to be your life. To where you think, when you think of who you are, you think, I am nothing apart from my Savior. 
He is everything to me. He's most precious to me. In fact, Jesus teaches often that following after God is really about finding Jesus to be the most valuable thing in all the world. Like I'm willing to give up everything so that I would be able to gain Christ. There's only one way to save your life. And it's only in willing submission to God's rule that you will be able to find life. Here's the thing. There's something within us that says, if I hold on tightly to it, if I can white knuckle the things that are most valuable to me, then I will never lose those things. And that's, that's not what Jesus says here in verse 35. The pathway to saving and gaining this, your life, runs through embracing loss here and now. And again, this begins to grade at us because we know uh, what we think is pleasurable. And sometimes what Christ calls us to, calls us to walk in a different direction. We think, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want to lose that. Clutching for life in the ways of this world will result in you losing your life for all of eternity. Think about that. Clutching for life in the ways of this world will result in you losing your life for all of eternity. If you die at 44 years old and you have no possessions and no honor, and yet you have Jesus, you've lost nothing, and you gain everything. And if you live to be 105, and you have everything this world offers, and you've rejected Christ, you will have lost everything at your death. And worse than that, you will have lost everything for all of eternity. So maybe the better question, thinking about how we live today, is not what do I want today, but what do I want to pursue today that will ensure I have life 500 years from now? So it's not uh, the first reason is die that you may live, but the second reason is treasure the right thing. See this in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is more precious than anything this world has to offer. And Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. If, it, if everything was put into your account, if you were king over the whole world, if you had all possessions... If you could gain it all, what good would it do if you lose your soul? And the second question is a similar question, but it's asking it from a different vantage point. What in the world can be compared to the preciousness of our soul? Your soul is the most enduring thing about you. It's the very breath of God in you. 
There is no treasure in this life, even the whole world, that is close to being the value of your soul. Thus, nothing in this life deserves more attention than your soul. It is a gift to be around people who seek to care for one another's souls. And if you're here and you're not a member of this church, I would just say, I know the men and women of this church, and they care about the souls of one another. This has to be our full-time passion. Feeding and nourishing and guarding our souls. And there's not many things more deceptive to your soul than the riches of this world and the ways of this world that come up alongside of us and just whisper to us, I want to be your friend. I want to give you what you want. If you will just do this, you can enjoy life. And I just think to what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For, in one's, uh, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Contrary to what the world tells you, that the world offers what you need, Jesus says, if you, if you take the bait, you will get death. And so if someone says, listen, let me give you the house of your dreams. Let me give you the man, the woman, the family, the career of your dream, the awards. Let me give you everything. And then once I give it to you, I will kill you. Will you take it? No. Because no one would say, why would I take something and then not even have the life to enjoy it? And Jesus, in great kindness to us, is saying, don't take what the world offers because you will not not in eternity enjoy that. I offer something better. I wonder, do you see this this morning? Parents, do you see this? Don't raise your children to think that they're the center of this world and that what this world is telling them is offering them life. Jesus is life. Nothing in this world is better than Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, let's stop living for short-term satisfaction over long-term well-being. Brings us to the third reason, last reason. Identify with Christ and not the world. Identify with Christ and not the world. And so if you and I are going to identify with Christ, then we will have to identify with with Christ before the world. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is why baptism is this public profession for a reason. Because the Bible really doesn't know anything of covert Christians. While the Christian religion is very personal, it is not private, it's public. John Piper is helpful here. He says the opposite of being ashamed 
is being proud of. The opposite of being ashamed is loving to be identified with. So this is what Jesus is saying. If you are embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, if you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and what I've done for you, then that's the way I will view you when I return. I will be ashamed of you. And you will perish with people who consider me an embarrassment. Lord, have mercy that professing Christians would not be willing to publicly identify with the Christ that they follow. One commentator noted that it has, it has been God's design that His people would identify with Him. And oftentimes that identification doesn't just come through a baptism that's happened once, though that is the first step of public identification. But oftentimes the identification comes with suffering for the sake of Christ. Like being willing to suffer, being willing to be thought less of because you're willing to stand with Christ. For most of us, we likely won't face persecution for identifying with Christ in the same way that our brothers in Yemen and North Korea and Somalia have to. But identifying with Christ still plays itself out in our lives. Some of you have jobs that will become more and more in jeopardy as you express and stand upon biblical convictions. Following Jesus may mean one day that you lose your job by holding fast to your convictions rather than keeping your job and losing your convictions. Losing friends and relationships that cause you to grow embarrassed by your allegiance to Christ. And so Christian brothers and sisters gladly renounce prosperity and applause from this world and live for being truly prosperous and hearing the commendation of God Himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. Those of you that are teens, what, what others think about you in this life is not life for you. Jesus lovingly says, come and I will give you real life. Life that will never fade, it will never end, life that will never let you down. It is a life that will be marked by hardship and trial, but it is a life where you will always have God with you. With the world before you, you can live for stuff in this world that will fade away in the applause of people that are set against God, or you can live for the treasure that Jesus is for the next trillion years. And so you think about Mark, or you think about Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 8, and you may be thinking, ah, Jesus is a threat to me because I'm the one who loves my life. And you realize, no, 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 Jesus is the real lover of life. He's the one who's graciously pleading, inviting for us to lay hold of true life, life that doesn't pass away with fleeting pleasures. So now what? So you're a year removed from the exciting days of starting this new work by the grace of God. So now what? Go the way of Jesus in faithful obedience. Deny yourself. Deny what you want. Die to what you want and follow Him. Because by dying and denying 
and taking up your cross and following Him, you will lay hold of the greatest treasure in all of life, God Himself. Winning comes by losing. And losing, uh, life comes out of death. And glory comes through suffering. And victory comes from defeat. And gaining comes from losing. If as Christians, as well as a church family, we want to live life and we want to find life, then we must die. If we want glory, then we must suffer. If we want victory, then we must embrace defeat. If we want to gain, we must experience loss. And so Covenant Hope Church, I would just remind you, you exist to glorify God by building a community that treasures Christ as King. And so in what ways are you struggling to die to the things that you want and to not live to the things that King Jesus wants? Does following Jesus and living this kind of holy life excite you? But you're not just treasuring Him alone. You want to be a community that does this. Are you fighting to ensure that your brothers and sisters in the faith are not gaining the world at the expense of their soul? Are you opening your life up to that kind of care from others? Are you laboring to help one another take stands for Christ no matter the cost? In regards to displaying Christ's truth and beauty and love to St. Pete and to the nations, are you willing to die daily that others might find life eternally? Again, John Piper said, Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing missionary faith, or it's not true Christianity. We need to be reminded of this because it's almost in incredible how listless we can become while calling ourselves Christians. Little by little, our whole orientation can become inward. We can go for months and years and not think about those that are perishing. We can become so dull and spiritually callous that we don't even ask if we believe in hell or lostness or the preciousness of Christ and the power of the cross and the freeness of the gospel and the command of Jesus. We just go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until there's nothing left but a smooth running program for the doctors and nurses and families. May this not be what happens to the church. Not covenant hope, not covenant life. And so, brothers and sisters, look unto the harvest field of unconverted humanity. Almost eight out of every ten people in Tampa Bay do not gather on, uh, with a church on Sundays. And so pray for the work and pray for workers and ask God how you are a part of that solution. Invite people to gatherings. Open your home. Take captive your reasons for the errands that you run and the recreation that you do. You've been challenged as a church. Who's your one within the church and who's your one outside of the church? And so I pray, Covenant Hope, that you would find life in denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Him. He's worth it. He's worth it. Your sending church loves you and supports you and believes and prays that many will come to faith because of you. And so let's put it all on the line for the glory of this one who's worth it all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
our holy God. I ask that the truth of your word would meet us in the place of our need. And you would compel us to walk in obedience. Forgive us for insisting on life as we want it. By your spirit, would you help us die to life as we want it so that we may gain life in Christ. And thank you, thank you for the work of Jesus that has made that life possible for people who were ruined because of sin. That's our boast, and that's our song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.